0: Well, the ideal way to start a sermon on the Ten Commandments is to talk about fashion, I think. (laughs) Fashion's a strange thing. Um, Styles come and go, and what was cutting edge and sexy one day is the complete opposite the next. Um, I don't know if you were around during the 80s, but in the 80s, uh, what seemed to be the thing was mullets and really bright colours in no particular order or pattern whatsoever. Um... Last year, it seems, beards were the big thing, right? And now all of a sudden I'm told they're not. Beards aren't there. It used to be something all the hipsters and baristas wore and now they're just disappearing. Look at the back, uh, look back at some of the favourite music videos of your youth, if if you're not still in your youth, and you'll you'll be astonished and probably cringe quite a lot at how they looked. I I watched uh, MC Hammer's Can't Touch This (laughs) the other day, and It's extraordinary to see how the fashion changes and how cringeworthy it is. I'm particularly bad at fashion, in case you haven't noticed. Um, I still wore happy pants in the mid-90s, for those of you who remember happy pants. I wore a hand-knitted white jumper with elbow pads and shoulder pads to my first real job interview. That's how out of fashion I was. It was my dad's jumper from I don't know when. my hairstyle is typically about 10 years behind the current ones. I had a massive comb-over from the ages of 6 to about 16, and I got rid of the comb-over to try and undercut so that I would be cool when I changed change schools and went to a new school. I don't think I pulled it off. I ditched the comb-over for a flat top in the early 2000s. I'm so out of touch with fashion. I actually changed my hairstyle something uh, in the last two weeks. And I didn't do it because I went, wow, this is great, looking good, I understand this. I did it because my barber said, you need to do this. And my wife said, he's right, this is the new look. I don't understand it. I go, is this it, Jude? And she goes, yep, that's it. I don't get fashion. But we want to keep up with fashion, don't we? To a degree, we want to be relevant, we want to um, fit in with the rest of the world. And churches face a similar pressure speak to the issues of the day. And so you might wonder why we would embark on a series through the Ten Commandments. This part of the Bible might be well known, but how helpful is a 3,400-year-old list of rules? Christianity has moved on a bit from this, hasn't it? I mean, Jesus seemed to barely speak about them. I think there's a lot of confusion about what Christians are supposed to do with this part of scripture. Are these still relevant? Are we still supposed to be obeying these? Some of them we're not even sure what they still mean or how they would apply. What's God doing today with these rules? I've got two points today and the first one, they're not short, I couldn't condense them. The first one is that God is showing his covenant people who he is and how to serve him. That's what God's doing. He's showing his people, us included, who he is and how to serve him. Now to understand this, um, we've got to understand the rest of Exodus. Maybe it's been a while since you've read Exodus, maybe you've never read it before. But this book has been divided up into two halves, this is exactly halfway through a crazy but true story of what God has done with his people. God chose a guy called Abraham several hundred years ago, before, several hundred years before this point, to become a nation, a people that he would call to make special to himself. And that family started to grow. It had really important people in it like Isaac and Jacob and their families, which also grew. Those families ended up travelling to Egypt where God saved them from a famine. And they liked the place so much, they liked the food so much maybe, that they stayed. And over the next 400 years, that family became a nation. Over that 400 years, that nation became slaves the owners of that land and that slavery became worse and worse. How many of you have been slaves? (laughs) That's right, my son puts his hand up. I ask that because none of us understand what slavery is truly like. None of us can understand generation after generation were born and raised under oppression and all their lives were forcibly turned towards the benefit of their masters. They would wake up with their children and their grandchildren and their grandparents around, and the day wouldn't be filled with hope and light and a feeling of, what can I achieve with the day? Look at this brand new day, what can I do with it? Instead, it's filled with pain and hopelessness and a certain knowledge That the efforts of that day would have a reward, not for themselves, but for their masters. And they would cry out from under the boot of their oppressors for rescue. They cry to God, Save us, help us. And God listens. The first 20 chapters of this book tell a story of a God powerful beyond understanding who steps in and rescues his people with his strong right hand. And with that rescue comes the feeling of freedom for the first time in generations. I don't know if we can imagine what that's like. The first feeling of freedom in generations it comes comes with the hope that tomorrow they might be able to live for something worthwhile instead of their foreign masters there's a sense that now life is worth living again by the time we get to the 10 commandments god has rescued his people in stunning and dramatic ways It's a permanent rescue. When when Egypt ran after them to re-enslave them, God destroyed that nation so that his people would be free permanently. And he said to them, you are now my people at the foot of the mountain. I've rescued you. He's rescued his people from physical slavery. But here's the key. That slavery has been symbolic of a deeper spiritual enslavement that they've been in. God has rescued this nation and now he's showing them, this is how we understand the Ten Commandments, he's showing them how to have spiritual freedom. He's rescued them from physical oppression and now he's rescuing them from spiritual oppression. It's a spiritual freedom that they've never had before. God says in chapter 20 and beyond, I'm going to do something special with you that I haven't done with anyone else. I'm going to make an agreement with you. The Bible calls these agreements covenants. You're going to see who I am and what I love. And you're going to be able to live for something that's bigger than anything Egypt had to offer. Everyone been to a job interview? Uh, in in job interviews these days, you're supposed to go and prepared, right? I don't know, maybe that was always the thing, but you're certainly supposed to go into a job interview prepared these days. Prepared by maybe knowing a lot about the company that you want to work for. So these days you go to their website, wouldn't you? And at their website you're going to go through there and you're going to find out what that company is about. You're going to look and you're going to see their values and their vision, you're going to see what they do and how they do it. You're going to understand what that company is really on about. And you're going to be able to say, at the end of that, whether that company is something that you want to be there just for six months because you need the money, or whether it's a company that you actually want to pour the next 10 years of your life into. I mean, we work, don't we, for for the $30 an hour or whatever it is that we get, but we also want to, if we go in there 40 hours a week, every week of our lives, we want to know that we're, we're pouring our life, our time, our energy into something worthwhile, something that we believe in, something that's bigger than us, beyond us, something that's good. You see this all the time, don't you? I mean, you think of maybe the Greenpeace website. You go there, you're going to know what Greenpeace is on about. You go to the Victoria Police website, you're going to know how they do things and what their philosophy is, their purpose and their dream. Well, dreams, I don't know if they have dreams. Do policemen have dreams? Joking. You go to our website, you're going to see what our purposes as a church are all about. And in this covenant, God's people are going to get a glimpse of God's values, what he treasures, what he loves, who he is. And they're also going to be able to see what they can live for, not the masters of the past, not pouring everything else into their, into their benefit and their life and, and their goals. They're going to be able to live for their God, the one true God who rescued them with his strong right hand. That's what these commandments, the Ten Commandments and the 603 commandments that follow it are on about. Does that make sense? Silence. That's what the commandments are on about. God is showing his covenant people who he is and how to serve him. We could use these commandments very differently. See, God has not rescued his people just from something. He's rescued them for something. They've been freed up from living in Egypt to worship and to serve the one true God. That's their purpose. And so we don't read these commandments in order to judge somebody else's morality. That's not what these are for. These are to understand God and how to serve Him. They're not a measure of how to be saved. We shouldn't be looking at these. If you're looking at these and you're saying, I've got number one and I've got number three, I've got number seven and eight haven't got a problem with any of those. And soon, I think I'm just about to get number four and number five under wraps. I'm headed in the right direction here. If we're coming to these commandments reading like that, we've got it around backwards. And if we're doing that to other people, saying, I see that person. I know they're struggling with number three. I'm going I'm to pray that God, God gets them. God puts his finger on number three because I can see their sin and it's wrong and it's not good and God hates it. If we're doing that, we've got a problem as well. If they're being used to fill a real believer with a guilt that rocks the assurance of their faith, then they're also being used wrongly. The commandments are part of a covenant That's a way of understanding who God is and what he loves. A way of showing his people how to serve him. My second point, and this is stepping into the first commandment now, is that the most important way to serve God, the most important way to serve God, is by putting him first in all things. This commandment is first. Because it's primary. The other nine commandments flow out of this one. If you understand the first one, you'll understand the other nine. And the other 603 that follow in the rest of the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, all flow out of this one. The very first thing, the primary thing that God's people should do to serve this God that they've been rescued by is have no other gods before me. I don't know if you feel the same, but it's really interesting that God doesn't say here that there are no other gods. I mean, they've just come out of Egypt. Egypt has 1,500 gods that we today know about that are known by name to those people. 1,500 gods. And it seems strange to me that a God who elsewhere proclaims in Isaiah 45... I am the Lord and there is no other, besides me there is no God, that he doesn't say here that there is no such thing as any other God, that they're not real. Instead he says, don't put them before me. Why does he do that? It seems here that God is acknowledging the inevitable in the human heart that people are built for worship people are built for worship. We can witness this in human history. Um, Egypt is a great example, 1,500 gods. But places like Greece, my son loves Greek mythology. You get gods like Apollo and Ares and Zeus and Poseidon. In Africa, they've got their own pantheon of gods there as well, The ones that I can't pronounce. so I won't even try. I wrote them down, but I won't. There are Aboriginal gods. The Ast- native Australian people had their own gods as well. And it, varies from state to state and in victoria they have a few different gods there's wa the trickster crow god there's biami the creator god and sky father there's binbiel the rainbow god and the list goes on and on and on every culture is built for worship and if they can't find or don't know or don't like the one true god They make something up in its place to worship. Now this shouldn't be for Christians something that worries us that maybe our God is the same as all those others, a product of the human desire to worship. Instead, this is confirmation and validation that we are built to worship And if we're missing the real thing, we will seek after something else. Except for these days, right? Except for modern society. Because it seems that science and a modern education has completely obliterated the desire for anyone to worship anything Titled God, right? It's really easy in our culture not to worship other gods. How many of you have an idol sitting on the shelf at home? It's—it's going to be very <laughs> <I> see Reuben. <laughs> Belief in any god is considered quaint. And if you do believe in a god, it seems like it'd be the easiest thing in the world to, to just to limit it at one, and walk past all the other ones and not add any other ones to your shelf. But what is God in our culture today does not have a statue built for it. What is worshipped in our culture is not labelled divine. What we give our lives to today is not the supernatural, but the completely ordinary. There are many gods in our culture. I'm just going to run through a couple of them together. And one I've already mentioned the God of science. I don't know if you've noticed our culture worshipping science. Think of the trust and the hope that we place in science. We trust that all the answers to the universe can one day be known. We trust that cancer and sickness will one day be defeated. That medicine will one day grant us eternal life. We trust in science's infinite nature that will, it will entrance us for the duration of all humanity, each and every day revealing another beautiful truth. We worship security. It's funny that in the West, where we've been granted so much security compared to the rest of the world, we worship it so deeply. We invest to secure retirement. We demand the government support us and keep us secure when anything at all goes wrong. We give offerings to insurance companies for every conceivable negative outcome. We've got house insurance, car insurance, income insurance, pet insurance, disability insurance, health insurance, life insurance, travel insurance and many more we ensure and secure as much of our lives as possible because we worship that security. Maybe above all the things that we worship in our culture today, we worship ourselves. Pleasure is the driving force behind much of our society today. We seek pleasure no matter how much it complicates our lives and no matter what we need to sacrifice for it. We seek pleasure in a lifestyle, travel and experiences. We desire the newest car, the swanky house, the more beautiful spouse. We worship ourselves with status. Has anyone wanted to look really good in other people's eyes? working hard to be someone, looking for the likes on the Facebook page. It doesn't matter if if you've got 10,000 likes or if you've got five, we're looking for how many we've got. How many followers on Instagram? I'm not on Instagram. Followers on Instagram. It's interesting how young men in particular seek some form of world domination with their business or some enterprise until life just seems to beat it out of them. Maybe as parents we seek status and worship ourselves in desiring to have kids that we can show off when they get the best education and become surgeons and lawyers and whatever else. We are built to worship and we love ...to worship, even if it's the absolute ordinary. Which of these gods is your God? Which of these do you worship? Which do you place before the one true God? The God who is the creator of all things? The things which science seeks to slowly uncover and understand? The God who's sovereign over all things and no insurance can protect against. And yet who can protect against all things. The God who breathed life into yourself, who was there before your life began, and who will be there when your body is but dust. What ignorance to think that we've risen above worship in our culture today. Now, if you've been at church for any length of time, uh, you've probably heard all this before. <laughs> this is nothing new to you. And you go, Phil, tell me something I don't know. It's okay if this is nothing new to you because the message is nothing new. The message is that the human heart hasn't changed. But there's real danger to you if you sit here and nod assent to me saying that modern idols are human pleasures and comforts and security and all that kind of stuff, and yet don't sit here and examine your own heart. There's danger there. Let me tell you what the danger is. The danger is you're going to miss how much you need Jesus because you haven't seen your own heart. You've missed the truth of how you failed him. The danger is you're going to miss understanding what he's saved you from if you don't understand what the gods are in your life, if you've failed to let his spirit examine your soul. The danger is you're going to miss a fuller, Life of service to the one who calls you to follow him if you constantly follow after lesser things. Every moment we worship these other things, place anything before him, prioritise anything above him, we are no longer serving him or following Jesus, but following what will one day be dust and ashes just like Israel was in slavery. Jesus said in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will say it. Jesus is saying that prioritizing me in this life, is prioritizing life itself. Because anything you live for will one day be dust and ashes. Have you thought about this? In a hundred years, all new people. None of us will be here. No one you know will be here. In 50 years, someone will bulldoze your house. In 20 years, the new car you bought will be at the wreckers. And the work you do tomorrow will be forgotten next week. Jesus is most worthy of your worship. A.W. Tozer said, we must never rest until everything inside us worships God. Why, why can you say something like that as a Christian? Because everything else is worthless. Everything else is less. Everything else is idolatry. Is a small g God that comes before the one true God? Is everything inside you worshipping your Savior? Now I could end here, but I'm going to ask, one rhetorical question I get asked all the time and that I've answered before. The question is, isn't Jesus laying it on a bit thick to ask us to put him first daily? <laughs> laying down your life and following him? Isn't he a bit arrogant or puffed up in thinking he's the only thing truly worth living for? I've used the illustration before of Usain Bolt. Everyone knows Usain Bolt. What an incredible guy. Have you seen some of the things he's accomplished? Usain Bolt uh, is an 11-time world champion. He holds world records in 100 metres and 200 metres. He won 20 Olympic gold medals out of 21 events that he went in. I'd I'd be happy with a bronze. (laughs) That's incredible. Imagine after winning all of those events in record-breaking times if he went to stand on that podium to receive his medals and the security guards stopped him from climbing up to his rightful place. Imagine if the IOC refused to give him the medals, if they didn't play his national anthem. It wouldn't be arrogance... For Usain Bolt to demand in the courts that those medals and that recognition be given to him and to his country. It would be reasonable recognition of the simple truth. That's what a life lived for Jesus is it's a reasonable recognition of the simple truth. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of everything in this world. He's the light of the world who gave his life to rescue people who hated him. He's the eternal lover of your souls. He's your brother, firstborn and resurrected from the dead. He sits in glory at the right hand of the Father, worshipped by beings beyond our comprehension. He's God himself. He's Yahweh who covenanted with his people at the foot of Mount Sinai and made the mountains smoke and tremble. He's the only one, the only thing worth living for. Give him nothing short of your life and enjoy him forever. Pray with me. Lord, we have so many gods. They don't number just two or three. They number in the hundreds. Our whole life is filled with seeking smaller, lesser things. And if we've examined our hearts at all, we can't help but admit that. Even as your chosen people, Lord, you've revealed yourself to And given the foundation of Jesus Christ, we still seek after lesser things. Lord, we pray that you would give us a greater desire to put you first. Lord, would we take up our crosses daily and follow Jesus? Would we spend, use up, and every single bit of every day in order to save our lives would our lives Lord would you help our lives be a complete life of worship where everything inside us lives for you we pray because we need your spirit's power we need to be given new desires and new hearts would you make our hearts even softer again Lord would you help us to love you